Amos Lee didn't exist before he started performing as a singer and songwriter. Oh, he was a person. He taught second grade. He just wasn't named Amos Lee. The kids and the teachers would just absolutely mangle my name every day, like my last name. I went to this open mic after work, after school one day, and I was like, you know what, dude, honestly, tonight, I don't want to have my name mangled. I'm just going to put the easiest name you cannot fuck up (laughs) on this list. Because I didn't, I was just going to an open mic. Like, I didn't think anything of it because I'd never really played out before. This was probably the first open mic I ever did. And that was like, people lost their shit. And I went back the next week and I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I, I didn't still at that point did not think I was going to be a professional musician. I was a school teacher. I was not 100% sold that I was going to do that my whole life. But I definitely wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm definitely going to do this, do this music thing. Like, it wasn't even on the table for me. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Amos Lee has put out seven albums dating back to 2005. He's drawn comparisons to artists like John Prine, who inspired Amos to get into music in the first place and later became his friend and mentor. In this interview, on this episode, I talk about how I've experienced Amos Lee's music in the past as kind of chill and acoustic. I believe I use the word pleasant. And listen, and you can hear him kind of bristle at that description. Gets a bit awkward, actually. For me, I kind of wish I hadn't characterized his music as such. It's awkward because for the person writing those songs and feeling what's in those lyrics and feeling those moods, It's often been something much deeper and more troubling that's going on, something not pleasant at all. Amos Lee has a new album coming out early next year called Dreamland, and it's a bit of a turn inward. Amos has been dealing with depression and anxiety most of his life. He's 44 now, and there have been episodes of panic attacks, dissociative episodes, and trauma. And more than other records that he's done, that all comes out in the songs. This is from a song called Worry No More. I'm listening to the sounds of mines, Spanish sketches, playground smiles, crowded streets and empty vibes, all too shame. Well, first off, I want to say this is my first piece of press, really, for this new record. So I think it's fitting that I'm on a show about that seems like it's about depression. <laughs> yeah, you're making the circuit. We're like the Tonight Show of depression. Yeah. <laughs> the SNL of feeling terrible. Yeah, that's right. There you go. We'll unpack Amos Lee's mind and his music in a moment. back with Amos Lee and talking about his upcoming album, Dreamland. And we're doing so not to make you run out and buy the CD. Are there still places to buy CDs? But we're doing it because Amos has some interesting ways of channeling his mental health 
through his music and his relationship to that music. It sounds different. Like there's more, I don't know how you would call the the sounds are, they're more in the box. So like I did the record with this guy named Leggy Langdon, who is a super talented producer who lives in L.A., who also struggles with depression, and you should probably have him on your show. (laughs) But uh, he and I sat in his living room just around the time coronavirus started to really hit its stride, and uh, we made this record. And I wanted to experiment a little bit with sounds and using different sounds and building arrangements from a bit of a different place. And uh, it just so happened that at the time it was probably best to keep the room as uh, unpopulated as, as we could because of all the, uh, the COVID crap that was happening. But to answer your question in a word, it sounds different. <laughs> it sounds different. I was going through the lyrics on the new album before we started, and I got to say, I've, I've always associated your music, which I've been familiar with for a long time, with, uh, you know, you want to have a nice time, you put on your Amos Lee music, you feel <laughs> good about the world. And I know from what I've been sent about this new album, yeah, okay, Amos Lee struggles with depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome. And there are things that he's coming to grips with and talking about because I always felt like he got it made, you know, he's so successful, Mm. which of course is a a fallacy of depression and anxiety. You can seem like you're doing great, but you're not. Yeah, and I guess it also kind of, if you say the word success, that means different things to you and me and maybe five other people and whoever it is. But, um, well, I appreciate, first of all, that you think that I seem like a jolly, even-tempered person. Um, I usually am pretty fine, but I definitely have had my my issues um, with all of the above things and more. Um, it creeps into a lot of the music. I just haven't, I haven't really delved deeper into my own story as much. I I tend to like to write about other people. I've always used music as kind of a portal, frankly, to to understand other people better and to try to offer some compassion to other people's stories. And I think this time I, I just wanted to explain a little bit more about where I was coming from. And frankly, since I recorded this record, I've written a new record, and there's more of that too. So... When you say you want to explain it, do you want to explain it to your audience or to yourself? Definitely to myself. Um, Also, just writing about what I was feeling at the time, which is, you know, when I made this record, I was, it was sort of pre-COVID, and I was already in a deep state of isolationism. Um, I went to Los Angeles and I kind of just lived in a bunker and, and wrote for a while and then recorded this record and really only saw Leggy, the, the, uh, the producer, for about three months. And he, he actually had a moment where he was needed a couple weeks off and uh, I was literally seeing nobody. So it was sort of the songwriting and the experience of my life as a touring artist and as a writer you know, they can be pretty disjointed. And I personally really enjoy being around people, but I can only do it for so long and then I have to go back into my little hole. But I guess really, man, like to be on this 
above the surface with it. I was doing some exploration of some old trauma and some some painful memories and some healing that I had to do for myself. Let's back up and get some biographical context here. You grew up in the Philadelphia area? Yep, that's right. Some of these issues, depression, anxiety, was that since you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, as long as I can remember. Um, yeah, the, the, that stuff started pretty early on for me. I, I never really communicated it, um, especially when I was really young. I just sort of kept to myself and kept it to myself. I think I had periods where I was a happy kid, but it wasn't it wasn't a like a easy path for me. Um, not that it, and I definitely don't think it is for anyone for that matter. Um, mine was particularly um, like I guess you would call it like solitary. As far as a child's life goes, I was pretty solitary. I was going with my mom to night school. And I mean, I went to school and stuff. It wasn't like I was raised in Idaho on a commune, but um, I was going to school. But after that, I was an only child. My mom went to night school and I would usually go with her. So it was a lot of time spent alone. But my family has a history of stuff. You know, my family has a history of depression and anxiety and all, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I don't think that, I think that I'm of the age where we didn't really consider that as a reality when you're, when I was younger. Now we do. Now we have a firmer understanding of the genetic stuff that happens in brains. And I know there's a, probably a lot of research that's like, well, you know, it's not just your genetic makeup, it's your experience and they inform each other. And, and it's like, who knows why? I think there's a lot of mystery with it. And, uh, I don't know. I just, yeah, I kind of had some, some challenging situations and um, anxiety. I didn't even really understand what it was until I was older. I was like, oh, that's what this is. Like, I didn't realize that I'm not supposed to feel absolutely shitty all the time. Wow. Like other people don't really feel that. You say that it was in your family. Is it something that was ever talked about no. as something that was going on, or was it just, no, this is reality? That is more it. I mean, my family are salt-of-the-earth people, you know, like from working-class neighborhoods and working-class situations, and we dealt, we, dealt with, we dealt with stuff differently. It was more self-medicating. Nobody went to therapy. Nobody talked about their feelings. Nobody talked about trauma. Nobody... They, no one still does. It's not, a, it's not that kind of thing with us. So I left home when I was 18 and sort of, I mean, I'd had major struggles, honestly, when I was like around nine or 10. I had some seriously traumatic stuff and um, went into what I would probably call agoraphobia. Like I was afraid to leave the house for a little while. I got out of that. I figured it out. I don't know what changed, but I guess I just, it, it just, you know, maybe it was just an overload of stuff and it wore off and I could go back into the world. But uh, that never really fully left me, you know, from that time. It kind of, it always stayed um, as sort of a companion. And the way that, the way that I sort of spotted it, like a, I don't know, like a gigantic parrot on my shoulder was when I had like a pretty major breakdown in college 
I uh, I I probably had what you would call a dissociative uh, um, state, and that really broke me wide open to kind of like confront it and go, oh, I don't really want this to be my reality for for however much longer I have, and um, it was. I mean, it's honestly, John, it's just been a battle. It's a battle. And it never ends, and I don't expect it to end. Um, I don't expect it to go away. I don't expect to wake up tomorrow and be quote-unquote cured. Um, I just expect to try to do things in my life that I feel good about and and try to minimize the self-inflicted damage that I do to myself. Well, you're trying to manage it, of course. I uh, Okay, yeah. I have a few questions. Is there anything you care to say about that? trauma when you were a kid that led to the agoraphobia? Not really, honestly. Okay. Like it's I might talk about stuff at some point, but sure. I, I don't feel I don't feel like that's where I'm at with it yet. Okay. Yeah. Um I mean we all have our stories, man, you know. <laughs> well and we all have our boundaries and that's good. Then the episode in college, I mean yeah. childhood is stressful. Young adulthood is amazingly stressful. Was was that episode keyed by the stress, the general stress of where you were in life, or was there an inciting incident, or did it just come out of nowhere? I mean, it had been building for a long time. It wasn't It wasn't like I was unaware of what it felt like, you know, but to the extent that it got to, it was a crisis. And, um, you know, I, I've... I've been through kind of like with my mental health, like I feel like I've been through a lot of shit, honestly. And, uh, you know, when it's at a crisis level, I know that I have to like, that's, it could be a few things. Like when I was going through it, I had to make some major changes to the way I was approaching things. Like I was, my, I was using mind altering substances probably too much. Um, I was not living healthily. And frankly, I had never, I'd never been diagnosed with anything. I had really hadn't been to a psychologist or psychiatrist since I was 10. You know, when I went to that, when I had that issue with the agoraphobia, my mom was like, uh, yeah, no, we need to figure out what's going on with you because you're not leaving the house (laughs) and you're a child. Um, yeah, it's your job to leave the house sometimes. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Um, but I, I, I think at that point I, I just needed, I needed help. I really needed help. And I didn't understand what, I didn't really understand what was going on because on one hand, like I just came to expect that you feel bad all the time. Like that's what we do. You thought the baseline was bad. That's just yeah. how people are. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I thought so. Like not that I was around a bunch of miserable people, but I always felt kind of bad. So I never really thought like, oh, well, I'm supposed to feel good all the time. But secondly, I was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't exist like that. It was pure terror and torture all the time. So you talk about it being a dissociative state or episode, and it sounds to me like a panic attack or like how people describe panic attacks. That was involved. That was definitely involved. Um, it was, it was, I mean, I was having panic attacks 
basically all day, every day. Ugh. Like one would stop and then the other would start. It was, and I, the body can't really handle that because of the amount of adrenaline that goes into a panic attack, a true panic attack. Like I hear people say like, oh man, I'm having a panic attack. I'm like, no, you're not. You would know if you were. Do you feel like you're about to die? No. Yeah. Then no. Yeah. Your, your, your version of panic attack is slightly disappointed. <laughs> yeah, just because you can't decide what to have at Chipotle doesn't mean you're having a panic yeah. attack. I'm having a real panic attack. Like, nah, dude, if you were having a real panic attack, you'd be sweating in the corner and you would not be talking to me right now. Like, you'd be freaking the fuck out. And you were getting um, those all the time. Yeah, it was pretty much like a full-on panic attack, like from the moment I woke up till, Ugh. you know, it was, but it was cool, honestly. Like, I, in a weird way, I really appreciate going through that because it informed the rest of my adult life. I would, I told myself when I was going through all of that, and it was fucking terrible. Like, I'm not saying that it's not, and I don't downplay people who struggle with anxiety. I laugh about it because I have to, but I told myself, like, I'm not going to go back into the hole I went into when I was a kid. Like, I'm not allowing myself to do that. I'm going to go and do shit. I don't know what that's going to look like for me. I know it's not going to feel great, but if I go back into the hole, then I'm going to get eaten alive. Like that thing in the basement is hungry and it will keep you there. And if you don't go, if you don't leave and you don't find, try to find the, you know, we can use the metaphor of light. If you don't try to find that, it's, you're just, you're going to think that the, all that it is is the darkness. And I knew that for a fact, I knew that that wasn't, the reality, especially when I started to like go to um, like meetings and talk to people about anxiety and hear their stories. I was like, oh, I'm not that different. Like this is not the only time this has happened in human history. I'm not alone. Other people are feeling this and other people are confronting it and getting better. That classic line about you're not so special as it relates to mental health, yeah. which is such a, a free yeah, thing true. to realize. I wonder if you've been dealing with anxiety for such a long time and you have this anxious childhood about moving and trying to fit in all these places. I mean, the, the anxiety, uh, people talk about this, the anxiety starts out as a valuable skill. You know, you're, you're, you have to be on guard. You have to be aware of threats. Like, it, it comes in handy. Um, the trouble comes when you grow up and those threats pass and you can't stop yeah. being on alert. Yeah, it's it's definitely an issue. Uh, I mean, it's sort of why like like I've had significant others like sometimes they'll be like, "Dude, what was going on with you in your sleep last <laughs> night?" <laughs> like you're just yelling. I was like, "Yeah, so <laughs> welcome to me." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you know when you hear all those pretty songs, there's also this other shit going on. And uh Well, that's probably what makes them so good because there's that undercurrent whether someone picks up on that or not. Yeah, I also think that it's interesting to me that you've associated like pleasantness and mellowness and easygoingness in the music that I make. And I I actually I mean, on one hand, I do, I mean, I like cathartic music. I love cathartic music. I also like really quietly 
powerful music. Like I've had a bunch, I had an experience of going to see um, some, like one of the things that really was incredibly powerful to me was going to see Thich Nhat Hanh speak at the Beacon Theater. I mean, he just sat on, on a cushion and, and spoke like really softly. And I was like, oh, I've never, like, I've never experienced that. Like I'm from Philadelphia. We yell, you know, like we're, <laughs> we yell. And uh, it, it was a really powerful reminder to me that like not all things that are loud or that are big are powerful. And um, I don't, I don't necessarily try to communicate mellowness. Um, but again, it's partially the medium, but if you think about like, there's a song I wrote on the Mission Bell album called Violin. It's not a feel good song. It's it's pretty. I mean, it's a lot of that's rough. Yeah, heartache in that one, for me. But then you have something like uh, on the same record, you have a song called El Camino that I wrote, which is very finger picky and chill and prinean in its own ways. And uh, not that I'm tr not that I'm saying I'm just saying the way that he plays guitar is the way that I tried to play guitar. So. I follow a lot of his like modes on the on the finger picking stuff, but anyway, there's there's a t like that song is heart wrenching for me to sing like every time I sing it because it's about loss, and it is mellow, and I don't really want to be didactic emotionally. I don't want to tell people how to feel. Um, I like that people get different stuff from different songs. There is a quiet catharsis in a lot of it, and I I know that because people tell me. And I like to offer that space for people to feel good and also feel terrible. <laughs> they want to. More with Amos Lee in a moment. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us, which can now be found in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. Or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. Thank you. 
Back with singer-songwriter Amos Lee talking about interesting challenges our minds give us sometimes and about interesting voices that he enjoys listening to. When it comes to singing well, like being a good singer, that could mean a million things. Lucinda Williams is probably like one of my top five singers of all time. I don't know that anyone would be like, I listen to Sinatra and Nat Cole and Lucinda. Like those to me, like, but I do. And I consider those people to be the greatest singers that have lived because of the way that they emote and the way they sing songs. And like, I mean, I have a, a list of a thousand singers that I think are amazing. And I don't always love having like what you would call a great voice because like, I think about just what I want. I'm just trying to say shit, you know, but I like this past year, I, I spent a lot of time listening to Chet Baker and talk about a great singer. Like, good God, good God, man. Like maybe technically one of the the greatest voices of all time, like the perfect tone, the perfect feel. Um, he, he tells you stories while he makes you feel that thing, which is like, you would probably think Chet Baker, like, oh, mellow, you know? No, like, no, there's so much fucking disaster in that. There's so much like pain and comfort and give me that combination every time. Give me pain and give me comfort. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to go into sadism, but here, but I'm just saying, like, as a as a person who loves art, those are the things I love together. Yeah, at this point, I want to talk about Lucinda for an hour. Yeah, please. I'll resist that urge. We'll do a special Lucinda episode one day. Yeah, I'd love. I want that. to talk about your time during COVID because I know you're somebody who admires John Prine, and obviously, we lost John Prine during COVID. And I know you're someone who values being alone and the concept of being isolated and also the power of playing music and connecting with people. How did you hold up? I'm just wondering about the effect of isolation on you and your music. I'm used to it. I'm used to it. This is not like, this is, this was not like I, all of my friends were like, oh shit, I'm finally understanding so much more about you. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is kind of like how I've lived a lot of my life in these strange, isolated phases where I don't talk to anyone and I don't go anywhere and all this other shit. I'll tell you what, if if I'm if I'm this is my dating profile, I'm not going to get many hits. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it does help for writing. I mean, how I held up, I, I did. I was up and down. I mean, I I feel more grateful than I ever have before in my life. Um, you know, my mentor and John Prine died. Um, Bill Withers was another mentor of mine who I really loved and had a great relationship with. He died. Um, a lot of friends of mine got sick. My mom had cancer and COVID. Uh, it was a beast. And I tried to hold her hand through the whole thing. And she's a fucking warrior. But it was painful and really traumatizing for all of us. Uh, to go through her chemo treatments while COVID is happening. And, you know, just the whole thing is, it's just been a, a bit of a mind fuck. It's like, it wasn't just COVID. It was like the George Floyd murder, COVID, 
the insane election, the radicalization of like all of America because they're online all day, uh, trying to make connections through Zoom and Instagram Live and playing music in my house for people. But look, man, I'm grateful. That's all I can say is I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for everything I have like the roof I have, the, you know, the fact that I can put a press a button on the wall and it makes my house cooler, you know, like what? <laughs> like we're, we live in, in times that are in some ways really confusing and in some ways entirely cushy and pampered. And I realize not everyone has that experience and I want to, and offer my heart to those, to those folks who are suffering and, um, I, I don't have an easy answer for you. I don't have a, here's how I was during one of the most tumultuous years in American and human history. Like, how was I? I was a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I wrote a lot. I felt a lot. I cried a lot. I, I found like a deeper appreciation for things that I find funny and lighthearted. And I found out who my real, true, deep friends are and who I really value in my life. And those connections got like really solidified. It's like, I need to talk to you because I love you. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, I think that as far as global pandemics, I was <laughs> I did pretty good. <laughs> yeah. A doctor friend of mine says that when people ask him for advice, he says, well, you know, it's it's my first pandemic, too. I'm trying yeah. to figure this out just like Yeah, anyone. exactly. So I wonder with the new album, Dreamland, coming out of COVID, your mom being sick, losing John Prine and, and Bill Withers, is there a message you're trying to send? Like, this is what I want to say here. This is the message I want to get out to people. And is that the case more so than in the past? Not so much as a singular thing. Um, I just, I sort of find the place I like to exist in in music is trying to relate to other people's struggles, trying to identify with them. I hate to, to make such a quippy kind of comparison, but it's like sort of my own quantum leap. If you remember that show from the sure. 80s, like Scott you Bakula. can go into someone else. Yeah, you can go into someone else's experience and, and sort of live, live with them. And I really try to do that in some of my songs. I had... Um, I had a particular experience where um, someone reached out to me on Instagram and told me that they're, they were really sick and they might not make it for the next month or two. Um, and I wrote them a song and I, I wanted them to know that even in these just treacherous, dark, pretty horrible times where we feel alone, that we're not and that even if you reach out to somebody on a weird level and you write them a message on the internet, they still care about you and they want you to know that they're present with you in the ether, wherever that is. And that's what music really is the most fulfilling for me. I do like to talk about my own stuff to an extent, but I really prefer to, to take on other voices and to take on um, the compassionate side of relating to people and wanting to act as you said at the very beginning of this to comfort them and um not that i think all music needs to just be comforting 
because you know it can be cathartic like today i listened to the plastic ono band record i mean talk about a cathartic record that dude is going through it on that shit and uh i do some of that in my songwriting too but i i wanna i also really like to to touch other people's pain yeah, I did a, a show with Josh Ritter, a stage show a couple of weeks ago, and it was the first time I'd heard live music in I don't know how long. And I thought, this, this is sorcery, you know? <laughs> and I, I'm not a musician. I have no other way to describe what this does as a, a healing power for psychic pain, what music can do. Do you understand it more as someone who makes music? Can you put that into words? Because I sure can't. I can't, but what I can say is I've before the this this era of pandemic, I was doing stuff online for kids who were quarantined because they were too sick to leave their hospital rooms. And uh, I worked with an organization called Musicians on Call, and I worked with an organization called the Melodic Caring Project. And both of those reach out to people who are quarantined, and you play music for them, either in their rooms or on the internet. And um, I can't quantify why, but I can tell you that it became real to me doing those, going into a hospice setting. And I tell this story a lot because it, it was something that completely flipped my script. I played, my friend's mom was in hospice and I went to play for her. And there were like five or six rooms on her floor. And one of them was this woman, Dora, and Dora uh, was, I was told, does not want me to go into her room, does not want me to play, says, if I go anywhere near her, she's going to give me the shit. <laughs> and okay. uh, her, her door was open, and I said to myself, I have to do something. Like, I know she doesn't want me to go in the room, but if I stand at the doorway and just play a little bit, like, maybe she won't hate it. Because I'm not that bad, you know? Like, I might not be her cup of tea, but I'm not terrible. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, so I did it, and her back was facing me, and I started playing, uh, I think I was playing Sweet Pea, um, which is a happy song that I wrote, even though I'm still pretty self-disparaging in it. Um, and I play the first verse and she turns to me at the end of the first verse and starts looking at me and I'm like, all right, it's about to go down. Like she's, she's going to fuck me up. And, uh, <laughs> but I don't stop. And then like when the bridge comes, she gets up and starts dancing around the room. And like it, it gives me chills, honestly, to, to think about it, to think about like, I was told by the nuns who worked at that hospice, Dora said, do not come into her room. And the transformation that happened in 60 seconds with her, and, she, and, and I went back after my friend's mom passed away, because she passed away a few months later, and I went back to just thank the nuns for having me. And uh, they said, and I'm not saying this was because of me, this was because Dora made a decision. They said, from that day on, she was like way more social. She came out of her room like she felt completely more connected to us. And I, I think of music for me was exactly the same. Music for me was that source that when I tap into it, 
I can get into the world. Like I get out of my chair and I dance by myself or I get out of my chair and I want to reach out to someone else and tell them I love them and, and hug them and give them this thing. And uh, the gift that Dora gave me that day is a life. I will have that for the rest of my life. I never really got to thank her because she did like kind of shoo me away at the end of the song. Yeah, no, she still didn't want me around, but, and which is normal for me, which is like sing to me or leave. But, um, you know, it, it really has been just a transformative thing in my, a transformative force. Like some people find faith. I found music. And um, that's sort of, that's sort of where it lands for me. Without it, I don't know how I would be right now. I, I might not be around, to be honest with you. That's Amos Lee kicking off his publicity for the new album by talking to us. And I almost just now said, talking to us, a show about feeling terrible. But I stopped myself because, you know, that's not what we're about. We're not about feeling terrible. We're about running into obstacles that might make us feel terrible sometimes. But we're also about pushing on anyway and gathering strength from our comrades facing the same challenges. And here's something to remember. You, me, Amos, we're all survivors. If you're listening to this right now, you've been dealing with a lot of trouble thrown your way by events of the world in the last 18 months, or in the last all of the months, I guess, in some regard. Life's hard, but you're still here. Maybe you're not thriving. Maybe you haven't kicked all of your problems, but you're here. And as stated earlier in the show, I'm glad you're here. How about a little more music here from Amos Lee? This is a new track from the new album called Shoulda Known Better. on Depression Mode, Lane Moore is a comedian, actor, writer, and I guess a performance artist. She goes on stage and hosts a show called Tinder Live, looking for love or mortification. When you're going on those dating apps, you feel like you're the only one who's seeing ridiculous profiles, the only one who's getting crappy messages, the only one who's having people be kind of mean to you and kind of flaky, and it feels very personal, and it's not. At Tinder live shows, you will hear people in the audience 
react to certain things. Like when there's like a photo of a guy with a fish and you'll hear like hundreds of women in the audience be like, no, and it's like you, <laughs> you instantly see the frustration so many of us are having individually. If people support our show through a small donation, we can keep being here together. If not, we can't. If you are already donating, you make Depression Mode happen, and we thank you. If you haven't donated, it's so easy to do. Find a level that works for you. Go to MaximumFun.org join. Also, give our sponsors a shot. Use those discount codes they offer. That stuff is tracked. You're getting good stuff, cheaper, and you're helping the show. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. Also, something that matters a lot. Hit subscribe. Give us five stars. Write reviews. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting conversations going on these topics. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741741. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think about the show, what you'd like to hear more about. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. We're on Twitter and Instagram at depressionpod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. There's a wonderful documentary on PBS about Sammy Davis Jr. that I really enjoyed. And there's no way of saying that without sounding old. And here's another sentence that's impossible to say without sounding like Larry King. Ready? That Sammy Davis Jr. was an amazingly talented guy. What a showman. I, I sound like Larry King. It's, it's unavoidable. It must be, I don't know, somewhere in the, in the vowels or diphthongs. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer This is DB in Boulder, Colorado. Take a deep breath with me. You can do it. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.